You're back with uh, Bob and Frank for another fresh, handcrafted, custom-made episode of Coffee Shop Conversations. Uh, we're glad you're with us. Um, we are uh, excited to be here and to be doing this recording with you. I'm particularly excited because I have no idea what we're going to talk about today, and I don't have any study notes at all to work from. So, Bob, you're going to have to orient us, and we're asking you now to take us where you need us to go. Well, actually, you do have study notes, Frank. It's the one we talked about the other night, but I've had further thoughts on it. So um, I don't have any notes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened to them. Oh, uh, you must have shredded the dog ate them, right? Uh, yeah, right. I don't have yeah. dog. Well, if you recall that conversation, we were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, as we've we've been talking about the Apostles' Creed, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff there, and and dare I say the word theology there. Mm. And in my experience in churches over the last uh, 50 years, I guess, almost from the time that I became a Christian, um, you say the word theology or doctrine, and everybody's eyes glaze over. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, oh, that's too hard. Oh, oh, I, I didn't go to Bible school. I can't talk about doctrine, you know. Right. In, in fact, uh, the Apostles' Creed is loaded with the threads of many of the major Christian doctrines. And uh, so anyway, where, where, what happened since our conversation the other night on that is... Uh, uh, I was watching something about Elon Musk. You know, a guy, he's poor as a pumper, right? Yeah. Uh, and the way he learns, and, and the title of the YouTube is uh, How to Remember Everything You Read, like Elon Musk. And I said, well, gee, I'd like to remember everything I need. Uh, I read, right. you know. So at any rate, uh, I watched the video. It was real interesting. And two gems came out of that, and they had little clips of Elon, but it was mostly a guy talking about what he did. And he uses the idea that I learned everything, uh, semantic trees, and that there should be no isolated facts without being related to something else. And if you do that, you've built a tree, a semantic tree in your head. And I got thinking about that. Uh, the other day we were talking about using a Christmas tree with, with the doctrine of God at the top. But I said, I'm thinking about it. No, no, I don't think I want to use a Christmas tree. I think I want to use an oak tree. Hmm. And the, the, the trunk of the oak tree is the doctrine of God. When we use the word doctrine, it's just a fancy word for the teaching or knowledge about. In fact, the very word theology means theos, God, ology, knowledge. Same thing we get with psychology or archaeology or, you know, another sociology, whatever other field you want to do. It's whatever is in front knowledge about that. And so theology 
uh, as a broad umbrella thing is everything possible that you can know about God and his universe. And the trunk of the tree is God himself. And in the Apostles' Creed, of course, you have the Trinity. And so those are the three portions, if you will, of the trunk. And I know you shouldn't use certain types of illustrations, but it makes sense. You know, a tree has the, the heart, has the sapwood, and then has the bark. So you got three parts. But, you know, those are totally different where when we're talking about God, uh, all three persons of the Trinity are exactly equal in terms of their power, their divinity, unlike the bark of a tree. Okay. But, but then from that tree hangs all the other uh, segments, if you will, of what can be known that, that's revealed to us in the scripture. Uh, we could back up a little bit and say, okay, God has revealed stuff, and the natural question is how? Well, the first statement is that, well, the first part of Romans, God reveals himself in the created world. Okay. Uh, the latter part of the book of Job, Job, I said Job. The latter part of the book of Job is all about the created order. He hangs the earth upon nothing. And, uh, and Paul tells us in Romans that, uh, it is evident that there's a God out there if you just open your eyes and look around. So that segment of theology we would call natural uh, revelation. He reveals himself through nature. We immediately move into biblical or specific revelation where God begins to tell his story. And the various schools, or I shouldn't say schools, the various way that that people study this stuff break theology down into about ten major areas. Uh, you know, they they look more deeply at each person of the Trinity. So as part of our tree, we would say, oh, there's Christology, knowledge about Christ. We have theology proper, which is usually interpreted as uh, about God himself and to some extent about the Father's nature. And then we have pneumatology, and pneuma is the idea of breath or the spirit, knowledge of the Holy Spirit. So we have those three. Uh, we could go on and say, okay, now we have to have some knowledge of what do we mean by inspiration of Scripture, that God reveals himself through the written word. If we want to use the 50-cent word, we would use the word bibliology. And then there's a number of other things. But uh, but I guess my concern as we started the Apostles' Creed thing is that we define these terms as we move along. Mm. Uh, because, because if we don't build a semantic tree for the listener, uh, he walks into a Bible study or a church or he talks at the coffee shop with somebody who wants to show his knowledge and these factoids are thrown out there, but he has no place to hang them on the tree, so they don't mean anything, and he doesn't remember them because of that. So, 
in a sense, then that tree becomes a memory aid. Yep. So then the Apostles' Creed is a condensed version of this, largely this whole universe of doctrine. Yeah, that's, that would be fair. Because as we read through it, it, it takes you, uh, you know, born of a Virgin Mary, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So we begin to talk about the works of Christ. Okay. He's born of Virgin Mary. What's his nature and origin? And what did he do? Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So it opens that whole thing of, well, what's the redemptive story? And uh, the works of Christ begin. When we move on, we talk about the Holy Spirit, and he makes all believers into one universal church, for instance. So we've, we're beginning to work down the tree and out on the branches to those things that are hung there, but they're all dependent on, at some point, a member of the Trinity. And in reality, every member of the Trinity is involved in everything. But, you know, for purposes of memory, remembering them and how they fit, we would say, yeah, you know, the redemptive is primarily Christ. And that's true in the death of the cross, but... You know, the Father is the designer and the Holy Spirit is the conceiver of the human side of of Jesus and he superintends our melding into the church. Okay. So you're not getting too deep. I, I feel like I'm 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 chasing rabbits here, Frank. No no no, there's no rabbits here at all. It's it's um this is really good stuff. Just to make sure I'm clear though. When I look at the Apostles' Creed, clearly I don't have your education, I don't have your training, so I, I don't see it the way you do. What I see is like a, a handy summary of like the most important points. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is that while that may be true, it's actually a really condensed framework of the crucial, what would you call them, structural ideas and then from there we flesh all that out later with further study is is that what you mean um yeah i i, I kind of would i mean it, it was written as a catechism if you will how do you educate a new believer and orient him to the major tenets of the christian worldview and christian faith um and it's intended to introduce us to concepts that we will study for a lifetime. But to introduce them in a way that um, is, is, is paired all the way to the bone. There's nothing extra. Nothing extra. So when the Apostles' Creed is presented... It's not even necessarily clear from the text itself how the different parts interlock or overlap. Mm-hmm. Is it? Well, I don't think so. But, you know, it is presented as a single body, as a single statement. And, you know, I, and perhaps that's one of the reasons the Apostles' Creed has lasted so long, 
in in the church because it summarizes uh, almost all the important knowledge. It doesn't take sides on certain issues. Right, like it's totally silent on things like uh, permanence of salvation, I think. Right. But it's, and it's, it's silent on the order of the second coming. And it's crystal clear, though, on the basis of salvation. That's right. That forgiveness of sin is, is you know, available to us. It's applied via the Holy Spirit but paid for via Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay. So, is it a fair statement then that the Apostles' Creed is a not a one-size-fits-all, but it is elastic enough to satisfy the brand-new believer to give them something they could memorize, and it would at least keep them pointed in the right direction, but for the more advanced Christian, the more mature Christian, maybe the one who's actually studied theology some, or the one who wants to, it gives them a place to begin that study. You know, that, right. that it begins at a place of, of some known quantity, and then they can study out from there. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it is it is a lot like the scriptures in that, that it, it tells you the essentials, but it is not exhaustive. You know, the Bible itself is only a snapshot of what God wants us to know. Hmm. Yeah. In fact, when I, when I was thinking about the oak tree thing, uh, you know, our son Kevin is very much into the natural sciences, and that's his field, and that's his degree. And he was telling us here a few months ago that when you look at an oak tree, that there's probably three times as much stuff below the ground, the root system, as there is above the ground. Hmm. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that's a perfect illustration because uh, the Bible is not exhaustive. And if we stop and think about, at least I do a little bit, uh, what's God really like? There's probably another three quarters of himself that we haven't yet been exposed to through the scripture. Hmm. That idea comes out graphically in the Narnia Chronicles, especially the last one there, the last battle. Mm-hmm. They, you know, Aslan rolls up the whole world of Narnia and calls time. And the the, the characters in the story, some have died, now they're back to life. and They're making their way into what they call Aslan's country. Mm-hmm. And as they do, it's they're realizing that things are more real in this one than in the old one. And it's like Plato's forms. It's now they're in the real country where the other thing was just a copy, which was what Plato was talking about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as they go deeper, they the thing somehow gets bigger as they go deeper into it. So they go further inside the thing and it becomes bigger than what they left somehow. And yeah. And, and that sort of, I wouldn't have thought of that the way you just described that, that the, the majority of what's knowable about, about God is not knowable. It's, it's not, it's not really presented in the scriptures. We don't know. Is that yeah. kind of what you mean? Yeah. There's a, another theological term that's called transcendent, that God is bigger than his created realm. 
which really sets Christianity apart because in certain religion, you know, all that is is part of God, you know. And we're saying, no, no, God is transcendent. He is bigger than uh, what we see. In fact, I, I, I didn't watch it. I probably should go back and find it. But there's some of the, the physicists are now saying that maybe there's ten dimensions, not three or four. God is bigger than what we can comprehend. And he's, and I hate to say it in quite this way, but he's dumbed down the scriptures to our level of, of ability to absorb it. I don't think that's the wrong way to put that, Bob. I, I mean, the, the sense of, of clarity when, when the scriptures say that, that God is a holy God and, and, and cannot tolerate sin in his presence, there's clearly a reality going on there that I can't begin to understand, let alone, you know, explain to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think the scriptures have to be dumbed down to, to you know, pictures and examples. And in fact, most of it is 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 teaching by example and by analogy. It's yeah. all studies. It's it's like here's a handful of principles, and I'm going to show you 57 ways that they get applied, and some of them are going to appear to contradict, and yet they don't. They're all consistent, even though in this realm, the way we measure things and the way we live, it does look contradictory. So, so the, the Apostles' Creed takes what's, an, I, I suppose, is a, a nearly impossible task, which is summarize God in, you know, ten sentences. But that's what it does, and it and it has a purpose for the new believer. It has a purpose for the more seasoned Christian, right? Mm-hmm. And there's enough there to keep us going for a lifetime, really. You know, um, you know. One example I use in, in the scriptures oftentimes is the, the creation story, Genesis one to three. And uh, one of my professors pointed out that the the goal of that story is tell us who did it, not how he did it, and not when he did it, mm. that he did it. And, uh, you know, if if God had written Genesis 1 to 3 so that a 21st century scientist could understand it, it would have been a closed book uh, until recently. And even then, it would be closed to 99.9% of the human race today, even because most of us are not scientists. So God has to tell things in ways that we can comprehend. And his problem, in a good sense, his problem was, how do I make this so that any reader in any age can get enough to know me? And what's intriguing about that is that no matter how much physicists have done with all their theories and measurements and all that, the basic structure of the Genesis creation story still holds. It was light first and then matter, right? There was a big explosion. Everything just formed, and then there it is. So all the studying that everybody has done, and, and they will tell you that, you know, they pretty well know how this realm works. You know, you know, all the things that, that affect movement and so forth. You know, they don't understand the why. They don't understand the when. 
they don't even understand the how. They just understand that these are the principles that seem to make it go. Mm-hmm. And they've, you know, they miss the the person behind the principles. But for all the studying, they haven't disproved it. There's there's nothing anywhere that says that the Genesis creation story is wrong, which is intriguing because how would Stone Age people, because that's probably when this was written, was the late Stone Age. How do these people know the order of creation? That's really intriguing that, that there's yeah. nothing, and then from nothing emerged light, and from light emerged matter. Huh. How'd that happen? Yeah, and, and, and that is the point, you know, that the, the order of creation, uh, you know, some people say there's microevolution within a species. Others say, no, no, Egypt was created after its own time. Uh, you know, it really doesn't tell us how God made the variety of, you know, the felines or, right. you know, yeah. you know, he, he doesn't tell us whether he created each subspecies independently or he let them evolve to some extent, you know, on their own. The other thing that I think um, Clark Pinnock pointed out to us in that same class was, you know, and there's a big debate amongst Christians. Okay, is it an old earth where God used millions and millions of years and used natural processes? Or are we a young earth uh, where, you know, Archbishop Usher says, you know, the word world was created in 4004 BC, April, I forget what the date is, you know. And uh, Clark pointed out, well, God created it. That much we know for sure. Right. And, and the question is, did, well, there's two questions. If he created Adam and Eve perfect at their place and created them as adults, did they have belly buttons? <laughs> Took a minute, didn't it? Well, they were perfect. Or the other thing that he went out is, Okay, God created this forest of trees. Well, if you could go back in time and cut one of them down, would it have growth rings? If it was a perfect tree, it would. It, and it would argue that it's very old. But if we had witnessed the creative event as a young earth thing, we would know, no, no, that was, that, that's, you know, that's, Two hours old, but it's got growth rings that says it's 500 years old. So this is, this is the part of those arguments that, that I think doesn't do anybody a great service because there's no way to prove or disprove anyone's position. And what happens is people will naturally stake out a position and they'll say, I think it's this or I think it's that. And they will fall out in contention. They were asking, somebody asked, uh, what about dinosaurs in the Bible? And I said, I, I don't get too wrapped up in it. I, I, I don't really have much of an opinion one way or the other. If somebody wanted to tell me that there's dinosaurs in the Bible, that's fine. And if somebody wanted to tell me that, you know, God left carcasses, you know, fossilized as a puzzle for humans to solve, to find and to struggle with, that's fine too. Mm-hmm. It doesn't affect my life as a man of God today at all. Not in the league. No. Not and I'm not going to fall out with anyone over it, but because I can't prove it, no matter yeah. what I do, I can't prove that. Yeah, and and there's a point at which you got to say, uh, God did it. 
and that's good enough. And, and that sounds like putting intellectual suicide, but it's not. It's, it's understanding that as humans, we have a limitation on what we can understand. And there are certain things that fall in the domain of God's right to act any way he wants. He is not obligated to tell us all the whys and wherefores. So that, okay, so think about that. Outside of Christianity, that lack of precision, that lack of knowability on the deepest level is held up as a criticism of Christianity as a, as a way to think about life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was watching a, a, a I, I told you this, I've been watching these YouTube videos and these philosophers will get up and talk or somebody will give a talk on mathematics or something, right? And they're really engaging people and they have the ability to take really complicated things and make them accessible to people who aren't necessarily, you know, math people or physics people. I'm certainly not. And I, I saw a couple of these where the physicist or the mathematician who was talking got down to the part where where they explained that at its deepest level, that, that look down into the tiny things, mm-hmm. they call it quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. What Do you know what that actually rests on, that whole thing? I, and they said it's, it's probability. So that whole thing about the dimensions mm-hmm. is not philosophical navel-gazing. It comes out of physics, and they said, here's what happens. You can't measure this stuff. You aren't measuring actual events. What you're measuring at that level, that subatomic, that tiny little particle level, what you're measuring is the probability that something will happen. That's what you're measuring. Hmm. So, And then there's this theory that comes up that says, this is Schrodinger's cat. Maybe you've heard of this. Yeah, I've heard of it. Okay. Well, Don't ask me to define it, though. Well, it comes out of this, this whole quantum mechanics debate about if this is all probabilities, and Schrodinger has a cat in a box. He opens the box. There's only a few outcomes there could be. The cat's alive, the cat's dead, right? Mm-hmm. And and depending on, on what happens in quantum mechanics, both could be happening, and that would create two separate universes. So some of this stuff, they can't answer any better than we can. Mm-hmm. But today they have the bully pulpit, so it sounds like they have the answers. And I'm becoming persuaded that that what we have and what they have is almost the same. We have a story that points to some truths. We have um, uh, our story will bear good scrutiny. Um, but it's ultimately unknowable, the real foundations of it. And all that differs from our story, from, and we have great faith in it. So all that differs from us and the, the physicist crowd, the, the, the non-believer physicist crowd, is that we say that the object of that whole story is a creator God. And they say, mm-hmm. no, that can't be. And that's the only difference that I can tell. If you put mm-hmm. a creator God into the physics story, the whole thing comes into a perfect focus, in my in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about here is really interesting to me because people will fall out over really hazy points that I, I just don't believe are provable. You know, they'll fall out over these minor, minor points or sometimes major points, but they're not that kind of point that's like, does my salvation hang on this? And and I don't mm-hmm. think that's always so good. Sometimes I think that's kind of destructive. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's coming to, the scientists sometimes come from, if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist. I heard, I heard a, a debate on YouTube. It was a, a Buddhist monk, and the Buddhist monk had trained as a mathematician. He had a PhD in math, but he had been a Buddhist monk for the last 20 years. And then the guy he was debating was a uh, theoretical physicist. So these guys were very well qualified for this conversation. And what the physicist was saying was, look, anything that can interact with this realm must be measurable. That's physics. And the, the Buddhist monk was saying, you think that because you can measure it, that's all that there is. And that's not the case. There is a soul, and you can't measure it, but it doesn't mean that it's not there. You just can't measure it. In other words, it's an arrogance to think that they can measure all this, that they can understand it all. And that's what people do. So they, our generation struggles because we have a familiarity with an explanation that's not biblical. And from that explanation, as impartial, as partial as it may be, as, as you know, it's only a part of a whole explanation. But as, as as incomplete as that is, we are told that it's okay to rely on that uh, to, to you know completely. Where if we did the same thing with the Christian story, that's complete, but but incomplete in the record. It's it's complete as a philosophy. It's complete as a theology, but it's incomplete as a history. If mm-hmm. we if we if we relied on the Christian side, they would tell us that we're fools. If we relied on the exact same incompleteness in physics, they would say that we're men of science. Mm-hmm. So we, our generation really struggles badly. And the conversations that, that you know, you're having here around the Apostles' Creed, they're faith questions. And, it, yeah. and I, think, I think ultimately it comes down to, is, is this a story I can believe? And mm-hmm. if it is, Let's get at it. And if it's not, let's face that issue squarely and find out what it is I'm struggling with believing. Because the science has no better answers. They they don't, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I keep going back to Clark Pennick again, who was quite an apologist. But, uh, you know, one of the other things he says, just because I have no answer doesn't mean there is no answer. Oh, my word. Wow. Yeah, and so you know, it, it, you know, just because man couldn't fly prior to the 1890s doesn't mean that it would be impossible. It just we didn't know enough yet, and the, a lot of things come down in, in life. I don't have the answer to a lot of things, but doesn't mean that God, you know, doesn't have an answer. Or, you know, one of my friends might have an answer. You know, frequently I turn to somebody that knows something about, I don't know, something. You know, like with you, you know, we can kind of talk on a certain level on mortgages and real estate. But if I really want to talk about evaluation, then Frank's the expert. You know? And and the inverse is true. If we want to talk lending, I can sort of like from from the sidelines, Tell what I think I know, but but the real depth of knowledge is entirely yours. It's just not yeah. even. A, it, it's like wow, that's really clear that you really went deep into that world, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. deep. So there were two expressions you always used to use, and and I guess they're 
becoming truer as I get to know God better. And, and one is God keeps the books, meaning, you know, we all want to have we we, we want to uh, ascribe some sort of a meaning to an event. You know, was it good or was it bad? And the answer is it must be good. But God keeps the books. He balances it all out in the end somehow. I, I may have gotten beaten this, but nevertheless, it's still for God's good. And the other one was, it, it wasn't so much an expression as a word picture that out over the horizon, these seemingly opposite or parallel truths intersect. And they do. They, they absolutely do. That's So you end up with paradoxes being true every time in the, in the Christian life. And that's not really consistently possible in this in this realm, you know, if there's no God. Yeah, that's right. So the guy coming to the to the Christian life, he's or she is struggling with getting a semantic tree. They may not even realize that's what they're trying to do, but I know for sure that's what I was trying to do because this was so unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. I had no way to think about it at all. Maybe mm -hmm. you did, but I didn't. I didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. So there was no way for me to apply anything I'd ever known before into this, into into following Jesus. I couldn't do it. It wasn't available to me. Well, and that's the thing. You had to develop the words, the semantics, and you had to begin to link them together in a way that made sense. And until you could know both the vocabulary, and see how one thing related to another thing. It, it was just, you know, it was just a mass of spaghetti that didn't make any sense. And that, our, yeah, that's fair. That is yeah, fair. Yeah. And so, you know, when we start talking about the Apostles' Creed, you know, let's pretend we've got a group of, you know, six or eight brand new Christians together. We're going to talk about the Apostles' Creed. And somebody's going to say, gee, uh, I, I, I don't understand what it means to be almighty. Explain that. And so we begin to build a word picture that this is uh, really, if we unpack that, it's just all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise. But that idea hangs on something. So this, this term, yeah. in, our, in, in our generation, that term has become... For everyone except professional linguists, I suppose, that term has become an insult or a way to dismiss an argument. Mm -hmm. uh, our differences are just semantics, right? Yeah. There's no, nothing of substance there. You're just quibbling over word meanings. Well, yeah. And, and that's <laughs> under that word. It's, it's, yeah. it's a very difficult word to use now because the meaning classically meant something very different than what it means today. Today it just means... Uh, it, it's almost become a synonym for the word pedantic. You know, that over-precision, that hyper-precision, yeah. that's pedantic. Yeah. We're, we're trying to show off a vocabulary or something. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, Bob, you're just arguing over small points. It's, you know, just be in the real world with us. And, and that's mm -hmm. not what you're saying here with semantic trees at all, is it? No, no. It's it's meaning that, that who was it we... We communicate with words, but we think in pictures. Hmm. And part of the semantic tree is you've got to get a picture. Uh, and my friend, Dr. Cashin, often says that we learn by contrast and comparison. Hmm. And so 
when we say, okay, he's almighty and humans are not, they're less than mighty. Oh, okay, well, now we've got a little bit of a picture. Uh, humans want justice, but they are not the embodiment of justice. So a contrast. Hmm. Uh, you know, so, uh, in fact, there's a lot of things that they talk about in, in upper-level theology where they say uh, certain things we cannot grasp in total about God. But because our heart resonates with them, we have a point of comparison. You know, we have some knowledge. He has infinite knowledge. Uh, as we get older, hopefully we get wiser. He has infinite wisdom. Uh, so there's things in our, we cry for justice. He is justice. Um, so we compare the known that we know, kind of know, and we compare it to the unknown and the greater. Again, maybe that's what we call the shadow and reality. But in all of those things, when that analysis is done, the, the, the comparing and contrasting and the, the word pictures, it's, it's to take a new thing and hang it onto an existing tree. Mm-hmm. So, so if if our if our tree if our if, if the trunk of our tree is God the Father, then is it fair to say then that the entire Apostles' Creed functions as an entire tree, but seen only in very coarse detail? Meaning, right? Okay. So, so there is in the Apostles' Creed there's theology proper, yeah. and there's Christology. Right, mm-hmm. and then there is pneumatology. Pneumatology, right, which comes okay. from the word breath or air, right? So, so if we took the Apostles' Creed and we said, oh, okay, let's do a, spirit, uh, a study of the Holy Spirit, beginning from the Apostles' Creed, we are taking now that that part of the trunk and starting to put branches onto it and leaves right. and so forth. Yeah, and we'd probably flip open to the, you know, the Gospel of John, like 14, 15, right in there, where it talks about the spirit of truth will come and he'll guide you into righteousness. So we begin to build a picture of how the Holy Spirit impacts in us in reality. So the, the person who is then committed to, or curious, long-term curious about, in other words, okay, this allows for a theological inquiry for the disciplined mind that doesn't require a whole lot of outside resources. It, they could take this structure, use it as that semantic tree mm-hmm. and Bible, and build the tree from there. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose what this is telling the new believer, the student, if you will, is that there are here are the pieces of the trunk that you really ought to be aware of, mm-hmm. and from there you can learn. But but to learn in an orderly way, just remember that when we're done talking about Almighty, that's an attribute of God the Father, and I suppose it's an attribute of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very difficult to separate. You know, He who has seen me has seen the Father, so we have a very close identification there. That we're expected to make. That's, 
really interesting. So then a study of the church history, I suppose, or or doctrinal history, you know, like how people have thought about this in past generations, I suppose that might be the roots mm-hmm. of that trail. Well, well I, I would say the roots would be the unknowable about God. Interesting. And, you know, because that's below the surface. You know, God has, God has put himself into our universe above the ground. Hmm. And he's revealed certain things there. Very uh, cool. We were, you know, and, you know, he, you know, my ways are not your ways. It's, you know, as far as, you know, your ways are above the ants, so my ways are above yours. You know, he tells us in these word pictures that, uh, you know, the comparison is just astronomically different. And, uh, you know, anyway, well, let's back up. You said something about going into our history. Now, for instance, let's say somebody reads the Apostles' Creed, and assignment number one, uh, you know, why don't you write, read John 1 and, you know, the Gospel of John in the first chapter, that's all it is, and look there for the teachings that occur in the Apostles' Creed. Now what we've done, we've tied the Apostles' Creed not so much as the authority as the Scripture's authority, which the Apostles' Creed is merely encapsulating for us, so we we'll get a handle on it. Hmm. That's and, really interesting. You know, we could go through the entire, well, in fact, you know, months ago when we started talking about the Apostles' Creed, that was one of the the exercises that I thought, but the other thing that could be done is for somebody who was really wanting to build their faith, they could go through the entire Gospel of John. They don't even have to bite off the whole Bible, just the Gospel of John. Mm. And take the Apostles' Creed and in the margin write down chapter and verse that supports each one of those statements. Oh my word. You know, and by the time you got done, you would you would see uh, where the Apostles' Creed is really biblically based. Oh yeah, it, you know the next step of that might be, and now the person's done that; he's gone through all the chapters of John. Uh, maybe he wants to say, well, I want to see how historically. Uh, how, how, how this thing developed as different Christians studied the scriptures. And it was. Bob, you may want to repeat that about pull out the Nicene Creed because a, 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 like a high whine started just when you said that. Oh, the Nicene Creed would be the next historical understanding as, as Christians. And I don't want to say just theologians. As Christians studied the Bible. The New Testament letters, which were circulated, the Old Testament, you know, they knew those things, they received, and they're saying, gee, the Apostles' Creed is a good start, but gee, there's some things here that I've seen in the scriptures that are not addressed. Gee, I wonder if the Nicene Creed picks up the theme and expands these, which is exactly what it does. It looks at uh, more of the 
the co-equality of it within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so it begins to expand those things. And when you go to John again, you know, he will see me, he see the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes as another helper. He will dwell you, he will empower you. Uh, yeah. You know, in other places it says it's okay to pray to the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously that means God if we can pray to the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, so, you know, we begin to build those things out. And we do it without getting lost in the meaning of which school of theological construct you happen to belong to. So... Okay, a couple of things. I'm I'm starting to get really tired. Yeah, it's been a long day. Well, it's it, it's it, it's that for sure. But these are really um, good conversations for me because they're um, it's not a lot of fat on them, so I have mm-hmm. to think really focused. Because because what happens is things you say ten minutes ago may trigger a, a question now. Mm. So I'm listening really diligently. <laughs> but you're still back there five minutes ago, right? <laughs> well, no, it's it's you got to I got to think about everything we've talked about because there's a, a consistency that we're looking for too. Mm-hmm. So it's, I can only do that for about 45 minutes, and then I I'm like, okay, I'm spent. I need a break. So so this topic of the accessibility. So you've now moved into another topic, which is incredible. And that is how to prove out this creed, how to, how to mm-hmm. use the tools in front of you to prove out this creed. I, what I'd like you to consider is, is that is that a topic worth recording on? Um, I, I think it's incredibly useful. And mm-hmm. and the parts, I'll leave it to you to figure out what, what you think is really useful about it, if you think anything is. I, I have my own opinions, and I don't want to, you know, get in the way. But but there's something very useful in there, I think. Yeah, let me think about that, Frank, because, you know, I don't want to get lost in the theological weeds. You're not, Bob. This is a master class of clarity. You listen to this yeah. again, other than the couple of, you know, technological squeaks we had. No, no, no. Listen to this thing again, and you're going to hear that it is a master class of clarity. It, it's really excellent. It's It's, it's pulling down theology into the practical for the new believer. No, no, no. It's really good. Okay, either, well, either it's not really, either it's really good or you're doing this only for me and I think it's really good and everybody else thinks it would stink. I don't know. <laughs> well, let me, let me give you a thing to conclude with. And it's something that I've, I've thought about uh, in light of some of the conversations you and I have been having on the side here is uh, Daniel, when he was doing his MDiv studies, I think it was when he was doing his MDiv studies, uh, came across a book that was called He Gave Us Stories. Yeah, I looked it up on the internet. Richard Pratt. And I don't remember that I read the book, but Daniel gave me a good uh, a good lesson and overview of the book. But the whole idea is, is that a lot of people approach the scriptures as being kind of a, uh, who did it, how did he do it, and what does he expect of us, and lay out the laws. 
And the author's premise, if I, if I understood Daniel correctly, the, the author's premise is, is that in every story, you need to look for how God reacts to the righteous man and the evil king or what the discussion and the, and the conspiracy and, you know, in uh, Ezra or Nehemiah and, and, uh, the stories are really about what's God's reaction and, and it brings out, in my thinking anyway, rather than the legality system, the theological system, it brings out the personality of God. You know, does he groan over evil? Does he groan over conspiracy? Does he delight in the man who, you know, like David, screws up big time, but seeks after God anyway? Uh, and the silent character in most of the Bible is, is God himself. And, and the way it's written tells us what his feelings about the situation are. Hmm. And I don't know whether that relates here, but it's something that has been percolating in my head for about 24 hours. That it's, when we talk about theology and why most people check out is they think it's heavy academics. And in reality, it's getting to know the God and what he feels strongly about, about justice and about love, and about, you know, the Godhead and how uh, the Trinity works together and, and the person that seeks to do right. Um, it, it's not a it's not primarily a legal book. It's primarily the story of God seeking out you. Well, I don't. I don't know. Um, you may have two different topics there. <laughs> I may have. That's how so I put things together. Well, when you listen to this again, you 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 may discover that you have one topic helping people understand how to use their Bible or primary sources to to teach themselves theology, reasoning from first principles forward using the Apostles' Creed. I think that would be just really, really fantastic. But the other is, is the, the, the topic you just described in that second part was very different, and that was much more about... Mm seeing everything from God's perspective. Uh, how do I put this? I think you understand what I mean. One was an elementary sort of, here's how mm. you teach yourself. But but then there's another yeah. piece is when, when you move to a slightly higher level, you're going to become aware of, of the third chord in the strand. And it's in, and the third chord is in, the third strand is in every chord everywhere because it's God. And, mm-hmm. Just because God's not speaking in politics doesn't mean he's not there. And just because God isn't speaking, you know, verbally in, you know, sin situations doesn't mean he's not there. I think those might be two very different topics. And then they probably are. Yeah, they probably are. But to me, I put them together. But yeah, but the, the, the problem is, is, is actually doing them in a 40 minute talk. 
<laughs> that, that brings yeah. a, a really focused clarity into something that helps people. And, and I think yeah. they're great topics. I'm not criticizing that at all. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not criticizing anything. I'm just saying that I think you're going to be happier if you pull those ideas apart mm-hmm. and see if they're not – because there's, there's a third topic implied, which is here's how you're teaching yourself. How do you know that you're teaching yourself correctly? How do you know mm-hmm. – what what what's the test you use to make sure you're straight? That's implied in what you're saying about both of those. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. so when we do this, and I think about topics, I'm I'm always thinking about clarifying the topic down to the point where because if we if we clarify it correctly, what will happen is as we talk, questions will just start unfolding, and the conversation will just move down a track that's really focused around that question and not around mm. much else, even though there's really <laughs> stuff all around it on, on every corner. Mm. And that's part of the problem you're going to have. And I, and I told you this from the very beginning, which is you have too much. And, <laughs> and, and the problem is, is refining it to the point where you're going to give that, that listener one idea in a talk. Now that idea will be complex enough It'll take you 40 minutes to really do it justice. And then the next time they can have another idea. But as we do this, I really think you're going to be, as you as you go along and talk, you're going to realize that you're standing in acres of diamonds and you have no end of things to talk about that mm. are that are really useful. This isn't like babbling about, you know, sports teams or something. This is for real. This is this is what life is all about. And you're uniquely suited because you've really studied at depth, and re- you know, very high levels with strong people. So when you're talking, when you're talking and and you're realizing, oh wait a minute, they need to know this. Man, I'd just keep a sheet of paper next to me and I'd say, here's an idea for a later one, mm. and just keep refining these ideas down because what you have to say, Bob, I'm telling you, I've said it before, I'll tell you again, it's it's important, it's useful, it's valuable, people need to hear it. My job is to help you to refine it, get it get it recorded and get it out the door. Okay. How do we summarize today's discussion? Okay. What, well, let's what's what's the kernel that we need to take away today that theology isn't difficult? Yeah. Theology is about learning about who God is, because it's still God's knowledge. And the Apostles' Creed is kind of a roadmap to help us read through the Scriptures. We've come to the end of our time together for today. Uh, Bob's talks are intellectually demanding for me, and I'm tired. (laughs) And Bob is tired, too. We had a good time. What we hope you learned from this one, what we hope you took away from this one, is that theology is not cloaked in secrecy or mystery. It's accessible to anyone who cares to learn, because the whole study is the study of God, and God wants to be known, and he wants to be known by you, and he wants to be known by us. So whatever you do, take comfort in the idea that God wants to be known, you can learn, and if you're willing to learn, God is there. That's a clunky way to close and to summarize, but sometimes it's the best that we have. So if you liked what we did today, we'd ask you to subscribe, download, uh, comments, whatever you think is best, especially if you can think of ways that we could improve the podcast, sound quality, topics, how we talk, so forth. In the meantime, may the Lord richly bless you until we meet again.